Bibles, your one-year Bibles, turn to October 18th. If you have a regular Bible, uh, turn to the book of Jeremiah, chapter number 31. And uh, this week has been an awesome, awesome reading uh, from the Word of God. Not that any of it is uh, um, just not good, but uh, the Word of God was very, very rich and full of a lot of things this week, and it was very difficult to decide the direction for the Bible study tonight. Um, and uh, there were two different directions that I could go and was feeling. So this week I, I am going to look to the Old Testament portion of our reading, and uh, next week we may very well look at the epistles to Timothy because these are very important letters uh, that the Apostle Paul wrote to an aspiring young minister named Timothy. But for this week I want to focus on the book of Jeremiah, uh, the story of this great prophet of God, and uh, in Jeremiah chapter number 31, and we're going to begin reading in verse number 33. It says, But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. The King James Version says, But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. Uh, After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts, write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Verse 34, And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, You should know the Lord, for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already, says the Lord. And I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. Now, this is a prophetic passage of Scripture. It was written by Jeremiah. No doubt he probably did not understand the full implication of the prophetic utterance and the uh, prophecy that extended beyond just the house of Israel according to the flesh, but extended to the house of Israel according to the Spirit through Jesus Christ, which includes the Gentile church. Amen? And the transformation that would happen when we were given a new heart. Now in in chapter number 32, I want to begin reading at verse 6. We're going to read a few verses here. In fact, um, if you want to, you may be seated because we've got a a number of verses here that I want to read as a foundation. Verse number 6 of chapter 32 says, At that time, the Lord sent me a message. He said, Your cousin Hanamel, son of Shalom, will come and say to you, Buy my field at Anathoth. By law, you have the right to buy it before it is offered to anyone else. Then, just as the Lord had said he would, my cousin Hanamel came and visited me in the prison. He said, Please buy my field at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. By law, you have the right to buy it before it is offered to anyone else. So buy it for yourself. Then I knew that the message I had heard was from the Lord. So I bought the field at Anathoth, paying Hanamel 17 pieces of silver for it. I signed and sealed the deed of purchase before witnesses, weighed out the silver, 
and paid him. Then I took the sealed deed and an unsealed copy of the deed, which was contained, uh, which contained the terms and conditions of the purchase, and I handed them to Baruch, son of Neriah, and grandson of Messiah. I did all this in the presence of my cousin Hanamil, the witness who had signed the deed, and all the men of Judah who were there in the courtyard of the guardhouse. Then I said to Baruch as they all listened, This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. Take both this sealed deed and the unsealed copy and put them into a pottery jar or a jar of clay to preserve them for a long time. For this is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. Someday people will again own property here in this land and will buy and sell houses and vineyards and fields. Verse number 24. See how the siege ramps have been built against the city walls? Through war, famine, and disease, the city will be handed over to the Babylonians who will conquer it. Everything has happened just as you said. And yet, O sovereign Lord, you have told me to buy the field, paying good money for it before these witnesses, even though the city will soon be handed over to the Babylonians. Then the message came to Jeremiah from the Lord. I am the Lord, the God of the peoples of the world. Is anything too hard for me? Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will hand this city over to the Babylonians and to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will capture it. The Babylonians outside the walls will come in and set fire to the city. They will burn down all these houses where the people provoked my anger by burning incense to Baal on the rooftops and by pouring out liquid offerings to other gods. Verse number 37. I will certainly bring my people back again from all the countries where I scatter them in my fury. I will bring them back to this very city and let them live in peace and safety. Verse 43. Fields will again be bought and sold in this land about which you now say it has been ravaged by the Babylonians. A desolate land where people and animals have all disappeared. Yes, fields will once again be bought and sold. Deeds signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin and here in Jerusalem, in the towns of Judah and in the hill country, in the foothills of Judah and in Negev too. For someday I will restore prosperity to them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Amen. If you have your Bibles and you want to turn to one New Testament verse that I want to read, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7. Before we read it, I want to take note. I want you to note, pay special attention to chapter 32, verse 10 of Jeremiah, where it says, I have signed and sealed the deal, the deed. I had it witnessed, and I weighed out the silver on the scales. And then in verse 14, the Lord God said, take these documents, both sealed and unsealed copies of the deed of purchase, and put them in a clay jar so they will last a long time. For this is what the Lord God, the, uh, Israel says, houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. Then in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7, it says, but we have 
this treasure in jars of clay or in earthen vessels to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Or, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. And I, I want to share with you a thought or a study from the Word of God in Jeremiah uh, that encompasses all of Scripture. And uh, by way of a title for our Bible study tonight, the title is Signed and Sealed in Jars of Clay. Signed and Sealed in Jars of Clay. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for its profound implications to our life in 2007. Thank you, Lord God, for the mystery that's been unfolded, this mystery of Jesus Christ. Pray that you'd empower and direct me this evening to share your will and your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said amen. And I want to share you with you a little context of the book of Jeremiah, this prophetic utterance, so that you understand where he's coming from. First of all, Jeremiah was written approximately 600 years before the birth of Jesus. 600 years before Jesus came was the time when the Babylonian siege happened. And then in 586 A.D. is when uh, the city fell. And in fact, um, uh, the uh, Judeans were taken captive and brought into Babylon. Now, from the other end, to give you context... Everybody knows where King David was. His son Solomon reigned in his stead. And then when Solomon finished his kingdom, or his kingdom was uh, completed, and he was on his deathbed, his son, I believe the name was Rehoboam, uh, took over from Solomon. And uh, that was where the kingdom was divided, because Rehoboam wouldn't listen to his elders instead. He listened to his peers and made some mistakes. And the kingdom was divided, and from that point forward, the northern kingdom of ten tribes was called Israel. The southern kingdom that included Jerusalem and included the tribes of, of, uh, of Judah, Benjamin, and the half-tribe of Manasseh became the southern kingdom. So the northern kingdom had its own king, Jeroboam. The southern kingdom had its own king, Rehoboam. And for a number of years, many years, these two kingdoms, Judah and Israel, uh, uh, ruled sim simultaneously, and they had prophets that ministered, some to Israel, some to Judah. The prophets of Isaiah and Jeremiah, as well as other prophets, um, prophesied specifically to the southern part of this divided kingdom, the southern part being called Judah. Now, from the time of the divided kingdom until the Babylonian captivity, when Judah was led into captivity because Israel was led into captivity almost 200 years before Judah by the Assyrians. But then almost 200 years after that, Judah was taken, uh, laid siege by Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. And essentially the kingdom was finally overthrown. The city burnt to the ground. Some people stayed, the poor people stayed. Uh, but many of the choice people were taken into Babylonian captivity and went to live in Babylon. Babylon. So between the, the beginning of the divided kingdom, King Rehoboam, and the uh, fall of, of uh, the city of Jerusalem to the Babylonians, there was approximately 19 dynasties or 19 kings or queens that ruled. And so during this time, 
that uh, between uh, the dividing of the kingdom and captivity, there was much sin and idolatry that had affected both Judah and Israel. And there were kings that led them into idolatry, both Israel and Judah. Kings like you've heard of Ahab and uh, Jezebel and many other kings that whose names you probably may not be able to recall. Maybe you can. Were kings that uh, would uh, periodically bring idolatry. And, and see, this is the important thing is Israel and, and Judah, this was God's chosen people. And God had said, given them the Ten Commandments very explicitly said, no gods before me, no graven images. I don't want you worshiping idols, and I only want you worshiping Jehovah. But this was a continual problem. And so finally, God's judgment was coming. God's punishment against his beloved and his chosen was coming. And as this judgment was approaching, there were prophetic urges that were coming forth through the lips of men of God who were warning the people of Israel and the people of Judah, in the case of Jeremiah, against the impending possibility or likelihood or even prophesied definitively that Israel and Jerusalem was going to be overthrown. It was going to be taken over. Now, during the time of Jeremiah, this prophet of God, during his time of prophecy, it was becoming more and more apparent who the aggressor was going to be that was actually going to bring the punishment against Israel for their, or Judah for their idolatry. It was going to be the great expanding world power of Babylon, which is the golden head that Daniel talks about, which was the first world empire of the many empires that would follow, the last of which is the great European empire that's going to be in place at the time of the coming of the Lord. And so Babylon and Jeremiah was prophesying that Babylon was going to take over Judah and Jerusalem. And uh, his prophecies were not popular because they were committed to hold the fort and remember the Alamo and fight to the death to protect Jerusalem against the impending armies of Babylon, thinking they were champions for the cause, when in reality they were resisting God's inevitable punishment. Jeremiah had told them many, many times, hey, guess what? If you guys will just repent, if you guys will say, I'm sorry, if you'll do away with all your false gods and the offerings that you make to the queen of heaven, the offerings that you make to Baal, and all of these disobediences to God's word, such as God commanded you to release the servants every seven years, you haven't done it. Then all of a sudden you decided, you know what? God's judgment is coming. Let's release the servants. So you released them. Then you decided to change your mind and take them back again. You've done all of these things, and you need to repent. King, you need to repent. People, you need to repent. Put God first. Do what God commanded you to do. Quit doing your own thing. Preaching this message, this message that John the Baptist would repeat 600 years later. As he said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And through all of Jeremiah's efforts, the kings and the leaders and the majority of the people ignored his declarations and begin to think that he was crazy. It even got worse because after thinking he was crazy, it went the next step and they begin to believe that he was actually a traitor to Israel in cahoots with King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon because he received a prophecy from the Lord that said, King, 
King Zedekiah, here's what you need to do. You need to go ahead and surrender the city of Jerusalem because this is God's judgment. And it's inevitable. It's going to be overthrown. It's going to be burnt to the ground. You need to surrender the city. And if you do, you'll be safe. Your family will be safe. And the people that you rule over will be allowed to uh, basically keep some normalcy of life. But if you resist, you refuse to surrender, if you fight to the end, the king's still going to take over. Nebuchadnezzar's still going to overthrow this kingdom. And what's worse is you'll be destroyed your family, your sons will be destroyed, and Israel, the children of, uh, of Judah, I mean, will be just scattered. And the king did not listen to him. And uh, they begin to think, you know what, this message makes me think that maybe he's conspiring as a prophet of God. Maybe he's conspiring with Nebuchadnezzar to make Nebuchadnezzar's overthrow of Jerusalem easier. And through the course of time, the battle raged on until... Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar and his armies actually lays, laid siege to the city of Jerusalem and built up their uh, uh, embattlements all around the walls and began to try to force through the walls. And uh, uh, the, the, the people that were living in Jerusalem were trapped in and the food became short. And they had to begin to tear down their houses and tear down the castle of the king to rebuild and strengthen the walls against the thrust of the army of Babylon. In the, in the meantime, Jeremiah is telling the soldiers, this is futile. You guys are wasting your time. This is God's judgment. This is promised and predicted. It's going to happen. No matter what you try, it's going to happen. And finally, they, they, they tired of hearing of Jeremiah, and they threw him into a makeshift jail that was in a man's house. And in this jail, Jeremiah felt like he was about to die. He wasn't getting enough food. He was being mistreated. And then he was called out to speak to the king. And when he spoke again to the king, uh, and he said, hey, put me somewhere else. I'm about to die. And so the king put him in, in a jail in the courtyard there, the king's courtyard. And uh, then uh, even before the city was thrown over, he was for a while in the courtyard. And then they took it a step further. They got really mad at him. And they threw him down into a well that didn't have any water. And it just had thick mud at the bottom. So he was sunk down maybe to his waist or chest. In mud, just down there starving, the great prophet Jeremiah. And finally, one of the uh, influential members of the community, hey, this is a big mistake. This is a man of God. I know you don't like his message. I know you think he's sowing discord. I know you think he's um, destroying the morale of the soldiers, but this is not right. We can't let him starve in the bottom of this well. And so they decided and they threw down ropes and they put him under it, uh, threw down uh, towels, if you would, or cloths or rags to put under his his arms. And they put the ropes under there, and they lifted him out of this muck. They put him back into the courtyard there. The end of the story is, of course, finally, even though the king resisted to the end, the Babylonians did take over. Then when they saw the king, or when they saw the general and the armies coming through the gates, the king and all his people tried to escape, but they were chased down. And then the king's sons were slain one by one right before the king. And then he was destroyed. <clears throat> and the people experienced terrible things. Now, here's the deal. God had prophesied or was in the process of prophesying while, before the city was overthrown. While, while Jeremiah is there in a prison, in jail, in the courtyard of the king, that Jerusalem is going to be overthrown. 
The temple's going to be knocked down. The walls are going to be burnt. It's going to be burnt to the ground. But this is not an eternal judgment. This is a temporary judgment. And after a period of time, in fact, gave him the period, 70 years, I'm going to bring, I'm going to bring all of the ones that have gone into captivity. I'm going to bring them back and reestablish Zion, Jerusalem, and Israel. It was within this context that Jeremiah is in prison. He knows you can hear the sounds, the outsides of the walls of the city of the Babylonians hammering against the wall day by day. You can sense it's just a matter of time, just a matter of time, until they break in through the walls. And all of a sudden, Jeremiah's cousin shows up. says, hey, Jeremy, uh, got a proposition for you. I got a nice piece of property, and I'm going to sell it. The property's in the tribe of Benjamin. It's right here in this area. Uh, you know, the law says, since it belongs to our family, I've got to ask you first if you want to buy it. Won't you buy it? It's a great price. Jeremiah's like, yeah, I bet it is a great price. The, uh, uh, the Babylonians are only like 20 feet away from us right now and uh, pounding on the walls, and uh, we're going to be overthrown. Most of us be killed, carried into captivity, and this land is going to be ravaged. Uh, yeah, I'm sure it's a good price. But the thing is, God had spoken to Jeremiah before the cousin arrived and said, your cousin's coming to sell you his property. And so Jeremiah says, I guess that was the Lord that spoke to me. He says, how much? I believe it was 17 pieces of silver. He says, I'll take it. I'll buy it. But here's what God wants us to do. And God spoke to him and said, here's what I want you to do. Think about this. This is kind of crazy. God said, I want you to take and in the presence of witnesses, bring them into the jail right here, in the presence of your cousin. I want you to take the deed and the documents for the property. I want you to take them and I want you to sign them. Jeremiah, put your name on the dotted line. You have paid the price. You weighed out and meted out 17 shekels of silver to him. I want you to sign the deed. Then when you're finished with that, I want you to take a copy and I want you to seal the deed, which would mean to close it or to finish it and put a mark on it. That's what a seal did. A seal shut the deal. That's why they say seal the deal. Finished it, completed it, and put a mark on it. And then God said, this is not Jeremiah's plan. The Bible said that God told him, take the deed that you have signed and sealed for this property that's about to fall into Babylonian hands, if not already. And I want you to put it into a jar of clay or a vessel made of dirt or mud, a piece of pottery, an earthen vessel. And I want you to Seal that, put it in that earthen vessel so it'll be protected for a long period of time. Then, uh, by implication, the idea is to bury that in the ground or put it in protected or a hidden place. Now, the interesting thing is that God told him to buy it. And I don't think that God was necessarily interested simply in Jeremiah's prosperity. But God was seeking to communicate a very deep meaning by what he was asking Jeremiah to do. Why did God care whether he bought this property or not? 
Why did God care? The reason is, stay with me for a second because I'm going somewhere here. The reason is, you've got to understand that this is an allegory or a living example. Like the parables of Jesus, but not a story, a real event. This is what an allegory is. An event that happened, that happened for a reason, that God told him to execute it exactly like he wanted him to. Because it was to communicate a deeper principle. Let me give you an example that you can understand. Anybody heard the story of Hosea, the prophet, before? Very interesting story. Hosea chapter 1 and verse 2, it says, When the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, he said to him, Go and marry a prostitute. So some of her children will be born to you from other men. This will illustrate the way my people have been untrue to me, openly committing adultery against the Lord by worshiping other gods. So God's saying to Hosea, this is the way God communicated in the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament's a schoolmaster. He says, Hosea, go out and find a prostitute. Someone who you can't trust. Someone who's got a bad reputation. And marry that chick. And when you marry her, you pretty much know she's going to cheat on you. You can have some babies by her, but she's going to have some babies that aren't yours. And this is all to be an example or an allegory to God's people to show them how I feel when my chosen people go out a-whoring to the false gods of this area, Baal and so forth. It was an allegory, something that happened in a person's life, in a prophet's life, to communicate a deeper principle. This is the same with Jeremiah. God told him to do it not just so he could make good money. And if that worked, I'd go ahead and be a prophet and have God give me stock tips. God just tell me when to buy and when to sell. Buy 37 shares of so-and-so. Put it in an earthen vessel and bury it in the ground. You'll be a rich man. It wasn't about that. It was about an allegory to teach us a deeper principle. Now, here's the reality. Jeremiah asks, God, why in the world have you asked me, number one, on one hand, to prophesy about the destruction and the coming siege and the burning of the city and the ravaging of the land, and then you told me to go buy this worthless piece of property? I don't understand, God. That's what Jeremiah said, trying to figure this out. I'm trying to understand why. And, of course, the Lord then communicated to him. I want to show the people, I want people to understand that even though you are the strongest voice declaring the destruction of Israel is coming, that there is a promise attached to this punishment. And the promise is after you learn your lesson, you will not stay in a state of despair forever. But you will come back, and there will be buying and selling again in Judah. There will be buying and selling and transferring of deeds in Judea again. This is to communicate it to my people. But the cool thing, brothers and sisters, is that the Bible stories of the Old Testament are like onion. They have layers, layers of implication, layers of meaning. 
layers of prophetic utterance because not only did it have implications to the children of Israel, but it had implications in terms of God's great mystery or plan that was unfolding that we talked about a couple of weeks ago when we studied the book of Colossians. As the Apostle Paul always said, this great mystery, which is the story of Jesus Christ, this great mystery which they didn't understand in the Old Testament. The prophets of old had insight. They had glimpses. They had utterances. But they didn't understand the fullness of the mystery. But Paul said, God has allowed me to understand and to declare the fullness that the God of the Old Testament, Jehovah, had a plan. There would be a baby that was born. This baby would grow up. This baby would uh, uh, reach a point uh, to where his ministry would become apparent. Uh, his prophetic utterances, uh, his ability to heal the sick, uh, to do miracles and take power and dominion over uh, uh, the forces of nature will draw the attentions of the masses. But then, uh, as he declares himself the Savior of the world, he will die on a cross, uh, seemingly bringing to an end the saga of this man called Jesus. But it's not the end. No, no. The world thinks it's the end. Satan thinks it's the end. But the mystery is that it's just the beginning. Because when Jesus died on the cross, He shed His blood. He died. He was buried. But He didn't stay in the tomb. He rose again. And the good news is Jesus died. This man called Jesus was buried. And this man called Jesus rose again. And the real truth is, the real truth is that this man, Jesus, was God, Jehovah, manifest in the flesh, reconciling the world unto himself. And the good news is you can follow him to eternal life by dying to your sins at an altar of repentance, being buried in waters of baptism in the precious name of Jesus, and receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. This is the good news. This is the truth. This is what the whole Bible is about. Throughout the New Testament, the Bible talks about the truth. Everybody say, the truth. You shall know the truth. And the truth shall set you free. And you are saved by the truth. By knowledge of the truth. By understanding the truth. What is the truth? The Paul makes it clear. When he talks about the truth, he's also talking about this mystery. That the Old Testament brothers didn't understand. The patriarchs and the prophets had glimpses, but they didn't understand the fullness. But this is what the Bible is about, the unfolding of this mystery. You say, Brother Brown, you're excited, but I thought we were talking about jars of clay 600 years before Jesus. I thought we were talking about an old prophet purchasing property that was worthless, and everybody said, don't have anything to do with that. Everybody said, there ain't no value there. That's fixing to fall into the hands of the enemy. No need to buy that. But Jeremiah bought it. He didn't just buy it, but God told him to buy it. Buy that property nobody wants. Buy that property that's worthless. But the important thing is you don't need to just say you're buying it, but I want you to follow a very careful process when you buy it. When you buy it, first of all, you've got to make the decision and make it known, I'm going to buy it. Then you've got to purchase it. 
put the money on the line. But after you purchase this old piece of property that nobody wants, I want you to say, bring the deed here and let me sign the deed. When we sign the deed and everything's filled out, I want you to fold it up and I want you to seal it. And then I want you to put this deed that everybody says is worthless because it's falling into the hands of the enemy, what it represents. I want you to put it into a jar of clay, a jar of clay that's not worth anything, but it's a container, and it contains something that everybody says is worthless, but what they don't know is that there's coming a day, 70 years from now, when you pull that jar out from the ground, when people say, this is my property, no, that was my, no, that belonged to my Uncle Joe, you can pull it out of the ground, and in that earthen vessel is proof positive that that property belongs to you, and when they came back 70 years later, back into the land of Babylon, whether it was Jeremiah or his family members, I don't know. But they dug in the ground. Daddy said it was over here. They claimed it was over here. They dug it out. And in the ground there was proof positive because there was a signature and there was a seal. And it was in a jar of clay in an earthen vessel. And so that which was in the earthen vessel or the jar of clay was not just paper, but it was treasure because it represented ownership. Come on, clap your hands because you know where I'm going. Buy it first. Make the exchange. Sign the paperwork. You don't own it without your signature, Jeremiah. You guys can make a gentleman agreement, shake your hands. But you know what, Jeremiah? You're going to leave for a while. So that don't work. You better sign the paperwork. You don't own it until you sign it. But when you finish signing it, I want you to seal it. Close the deal. Close it in. See, when you seal an envelope, that's so everything doesn't fall out. It's sealed. It's done. And you know what? Don't seal the envelope till you're done with the letter. Anybody ever made that mistake before? Oh, I forgot to put the check in. And you have to rip it apart. It looks all terrible. You seal it when it's done. He said when you're done, when you've made the exchange, when you've signed the paperwork, seal it. Close it in. But the Old Testament uh, or the ancient idea of sealing something included not just closing it in, but it also included putting a mark on it as a witness of ownership. Put a mark on it. Put a distinctive mark on it. And finally, when you've done all this, you bought it, you signed it, you sealed it, put it in a jar of clay or an earthen vessel, which means a container made out of dirt. Container ain't worth nothing. But what you're putting inside of it has value and it has worth. Because after 70 years, there will be buying and selling again. And this property will belong to you legally. It don't look like it's worth much now because it belongs to the enemy. But it's worth a lot. Why the signature? Why seal it in an earthen vessel? Or why put it in a jar of clay? Why, God, do you want me to do I don't understand this, Jeremiah says. Just a normal container not worth much, but what is inside of it right now represents no value, but 70 years from now will represent great value. What is the meaning of this allegory? It's not just to make Jeremiah rich, but it's a little clue, a little clue, a little subtextual emergence of God's plan and mystery being unfolded. See, if you want to find out what the clue is, look at what Jeremiah is talking about just a few verses earlier. We read it in Jeremiah 31, verse 33. Amen. When, he, when Jeremiah declared and said uh, very uh, clearly that, uh, that uh, 
that I'm going to make a new covenant with Israel. I'm going to write my law on their hearts. I'm going to put it on their inward parts. And they're going to obey me. See, the children of Israel couldn't obey the law that was written on stone. They couldn't obey the law written on parchment. But God said, I'm going to make a new covenant. And with my new covenant, I'm going to put my law in the fleshly tables of their heart. And so nobody's going to have to teach them because it's going to be in their heart. I'm going to do a new thing. I'm going to have a new covenant. And you and I know what the new covenant is. God said, I'm going to put my spirit in you. And when I put my spirit in you, nobody has to teach you and and force you and show you. But from your heart, when you're born of the spirit, when you're filled with the spirit, it's a transformation. Just a little clue of what this allegory was about. An earthen vessel, a jar of clay. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 7 says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. It's talking about the Holy Spirit. It's talking about the promise of heaven. It's talking about the mystery of godliness revealed. It's put into jars of clay. Now you say, Brother Brown, what are you talking about? Earthen vessels or jars of clay. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? And though this body is just a vessel of dirt, just a vessel of clay, a vessel of dirt, I came from the dust, I'll return to the dust, and it's not worth much, but it's got something inside that is valuable, and the treasure's on the inside. The treasure's not the vessel, but the treasure's contained in the vessel. See, if it was all about me, you could praise me. But it's not all about me, and it's not all about you. But you're a container. You are a jar of clay that contains on the inside a treasure that may not seem like it's worth much now. But there's coming a day when everybody's going to stand back and wonder. And somebody says, comes by and says, that jar of clay belongs to me. I got proof on the inside. I don't think Jeremiah understood the full implications of this allegory. This great mystery was being unfolded in the Old Testament. Jars of clay are human beings. In this Second Corinthians passage, vessels containing a treasure. I heard a message preached one time was so powerful. You remember the old story in the Old Testament about how the miracle cruise of oil, just one cruise of oil, they brought all the containers, the vessels, said, bring vessels. Don't bring a few. Bring a bunch of them. And as long as there were vessels, it was pouring. As soon as they ran out of vessels, all gone. It was a miracle, right? I mean, know you take a little bottle of anointing oil and you fill up a room full of vessels. That's a miracle. That's a miracle. And so the miracle continued as long as there were vessels. But when they ran out of vessels, the miracle stopped. The miracles weren't the, the vessels weren't special, but the miracle needed a container. And see what God wants to do is special. God's miraculous power. See, we can say, God, come save this community. God says, I'll do it, but I got to find a vessel because the miracle needs a vessel to contain it. Amen. How many like pizza? Pizza's great, isn't it? How many would like to eat the, the cardboard box that it comes What do you do with the cardboard box? Throw it away. But you know what? The cardboard box has a purpose. Because I don't want the pizza man coming to my door with the pizza all over his hands. I, I want it in a container. 
Because the pizza needs a container. And the miracle needs a vessel. And God's purpose needs a container on this earth. And we are the earthen vessels that the treasure is in. (laughs) But here's the cool part. Is that God said to Jeremiah, sign the papers. Seal it. First of all, put your name on it. Then I want you to seal it. And then... Put it in the clay jar. See, here's the deal. In order for you to really belong to Jesus, you've got to have his name. You've got to have his seal. Because when Jesus comes again, there's got to be proof of ownership. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan? He said, I'm leaving. I'm going to be gone for two days. But I'm coming back again. This was speaking of Jesus, who bound our wounds with his miraculous power. But he said, I'm coming again. And I'm coming to receive my own. That's why in the rapture, some people are going up and some people aren't going. Some graves are going to break open and some graves are going to remain closed because the thing that makes this old, useless, worthless jar of clay of any value is that it's got a signature and a seal inside it. I said it's got a signature and a seal inside of it. I like this. Let me read some verses to you. Ephesians 1.13 says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth. There it is. When you heard the truth, you got included. The gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal. The promised Holy Spirit. Okay, here's one plain thing from the New Testament. The Bible says over and over, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's what closed the deal. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Amen? Praise God. I like this. Having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession To the praise of, man, I feel goosebumps right now. To the praise of His glory. The Holy Spirit that you received is a deposit that guarantees your inheritance. That when God comes back and says, I'm looking for those that belong to me. You're going to say, I've got the down payment. i got the deal sealed. There's something on the inside. It's not my flesh. It's not who I am. It's not my brain power. But the treasure's in the vessel. The treasure is the seal of God's Spirit. Second Corinthians 1.21 says, He anointed us, set His seal of ownership on us. And put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is 
to come. Come on now. Do you, do you see the point here? Jeremiah has no clue what he's doing. He's putting it all together here. I'm getting ready to go into captivity. I'm going to have nothing to do with this land. But God says I'm teaching something. This is an allegory. This is another understanding of the truth that is to come. Those jars of clay, those jars of clay are going to have something in them that prove to me, that prove to the world, that proves to Satan, that proves to whoever's interested that they belong to me. 1 Corinthians 6 and 11. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Oh, my Lord, listen to me. It says you used to be pretty bad, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. You went from being a sinner to being a saint. You went from being lost to, to being found. You went from being hell-bound to being heaven-bound. And let me tell you how it happened. It happened through the power of the name of Jesus, and it happened through the Holy Spirit. Come on, man. Can he get any more plain than that? You were washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. The name of Jesus is what makes the deal legal. The Holy Spirit is what seals the deal. See, I can come right out and say it the real normal way. The way Peter did. Peter said, if you want to be in the church, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. The Apostle Peter made it clear that you belong to Jesus when you get his name and when you get his spirit. You are a possession of the king. You don't belong to yourself anymore. You were bought with a price. When Jeremiah signed that piece of paperwork, he didn't sign it, the prophet. He didn't sign it, God's man. He signed it, Jeremiah. Because when he came to buy it, when he came back, and he said, that belongs to me, and I got the title deed, they're going to say, what's your name? You're the one that bought it. You claim you bought it. Your name better be on the title deed. If you say you bought it and somebody else's name's on the title deed, then you're a liar. And when Jesus comes again, in order to belong to Jesus, his name better be on the title deed. Let me tell you something how, how, how the enemy works. Isn't it interesting that every Bible, every baptism in the New Testament church was in the name of Jesus? You know why? Let me just read a few verses here, and we'll come back to that point. Repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name. Remission of sins in His name among all nations. Uh, John twenty thirty, or, or, or I'm sorry, uh, John three eighteen. He that believeth on Him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name 
of the only begotten Son. John twenty thirty one. These are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through His name. Something about the actual name of Jesus is going to give us life. Life through His name. Of course, Acts 2.38, Peter said, Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Acts 4.12, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Everybody say, we're saved by the name. You're not saved by the bell, you're saved by the name. His name has to be on the title deed. Because it's His name that saved you, that purchased you. And when the trumpet sounds, it's what's going to redeem you and prove that you belong to the Lord Jesus. See, this was no problem. You know, the Bible says, they that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Bible says in another place, that the, the Gentiles upon whom my name is called will become part of the church. In Acts chapter number 15. This was no problem when the church began. Because every baptism in the New Testament church, when they baptized them, they were commanded, they were commanded to baptize them in the name of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus. In fact, before Jesus left, he said, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father being a title, Son being a title, Holy Spirit being a distinction of what God's Spirit is like. But the name is what you get baptized in because the name is God's purchase power and ownership proof to your life. That's why it's important. If you've been baptized before as a baby or if you've ever been baptized Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I command you, I declare to you, get baptized in the name of Jesus. Check out how Satan works. Ask any honest historian, ask any honest pastor, how did they baptize? How did the apostles baptize people? Well, in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Lord Jesus. How did the church baptize people for the first 300 years? In the name of the Lord Jesus. When did they start baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Oh, about 300 years after Jesus. That's pretty curious, isn't it? But now, in order to be an orthodox Christian and acceptable in the Christian community, you've got to accept the Trinity that the apostles didn't believe, and it's not even written in the Bible. And you've got to believe and accept and be baptized in titles, even though nobody in the New Testament church was. See, here's the deal. The name of Jesus, when you go down the waters of baptism, is the only thing that has power to wash your sins away. That's why when you want to cast out an evil spirit, you say... In the name of Jesus, I take authority over you. Hey, man, even Catholics got that right. Those priests trying to do their, uh, what do you call it, uh, exorcisms. They don't try to cast out evil spirits in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When it comes to casting out evil spirits, they say in the name of Jesus Christ. When they pray for sick people, in the name of Jesus. The Bible says, whatsoever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of Jesus. Well, let me tell you, there's something more important than casting out evil spirits or, or taking dominion over sickness. And that is taking dominion over the thing that has you headed to hell. That's the sin in your life. And the only thing that has power to deal with your sin is the name of Jesus. And when I baptize you, I say I baptize you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission or the washing of your sins. For 200 years. Almost 300 years, every person who 
who was baptized in a Christian church, was baptized by immersion under the water in the name of Jesus Christ, getting the name of Jesus signed on them. And then they were expected, hey, you're going to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And guess what? They had evidence, too evidence that was they spoke in other tongues as the Spirit of God gave them the utterance. That's why we're apostolic. That's why we are apostolic. That's why we make an issue out of getting baptized in Jesus' name. Because there's no other name that can save you. There's no other name that can wash your sins away. There's no other name that proves ownership. Hallelujah. Praise God. Acts 8. Uh, 11, but now the people believe Philip's message of good news concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. The name of Jesus Christ is the gospel message. Acts 10.43, all the prophets testify about him, that everyone believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Come on now. How, how much? It's more plain to you. Sins are remitted through his name. Evil spirits are cast out through his name. I want to tell you, if you've not been baptized in the name of Jesus, I'm making an issue of it tonight. You need to get baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Get his name signed upon you. Acts chapter 15 is very powerful. And uh, I don't have time to give you the full background. But they were saying, hey, you know what? All these new Gentile believers in the church, they need to get circumcised and they need to obey the law of Moses. Paul said, no. Jesus finished all that. Jesus, all that was a schoolmaster to lead us to Jesus. Jesus fulfilled all the law. And so we don't need to have them circumcised because that's not what what makes them a part of the covenant family anymore. Now they're made a part of the covenant family through the name of Jesus. I have no right to this thing just because I walk into a Christian church. I have no right to this. I'm not a Jew. I'm not one of God's chosen people according to the flesh. So I don't get into this through circumcision. I get into this through the name of Jesus Christ. Acts fifteen fourteen, the words of James. Simeon hath declared how God at first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. It says, And all the Gentiles... Upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord. It's quoting an Old Testament passage, Amos chapter 9, verse 12. They that possess the remnant of Eden, Edom and all the heathen, which means non-Jews, which are called by my name. I looked at the actual translation of those passages of Scripture. It's interesting. It says, over whom my name was called. All the Gentiles, over whom my name was called. They become a part of. Amen. Of the family of God. And so that's why the Bible says we are not uh, circumcised with circumcision of the flesh, but we're circumcised with circumcision of the heart when we're buried with him in baptism. Because the old sign of the covenant was the cutting away of the flesh. The new sign of the covenant is the cutting away of the old man when the name of Jesus. See, my access is not through my dad being a son of Abraham, but my access is having the name of Jesus called over me in the waters of baptism. When I give my life to the Lord and I have my sins washed away, I become a person of the name. My name is changed. I am now under the name of Jesus Christ. James 2.7, aren't these the one who slandered Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? You, you have the name of Jesus Christ now. 
Revelation 3.12, Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from God. And I will write upon him my new name. And finally, Revelation 22 and 3, No longer will anything be cursed, for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be written on their foreheads. The name that's above every other name, the name at which one day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. See, I'm just a char of clay. I'm nothing special. I'm just a container made out of dirt. But there's something special inside of me. It's a treasure. It's a treasure. The earth doesn't, the world doesn't understand it. People don't recognize it. They don't see anything significant of it. But something on the inside, this gospel plan, this plan of God that's been unfolded in my life uh, has been a title deed. I belong to Jesus because he signed. Hallelujah. I belong to Jesus because his name is called over me. I am a person of the name of Jesus. I am a child of God. I've got his name on my life. But then when the signature was done legalizing my ownership by God, they sealed the deal. And when he sealed it, he sealed it with his Holy Spirit, saying it's a done deal. It's finished. It's completed. Satan, you have no more access here any longer. I put my law in his heart. It's a finished deal. It's sealed. But not only is it sealed and finished, but I put my mark on it. He's going to look different. She's going to act different. They're going to be a person of Jesus Christ because I put my mark on it. And I put it in an earthen vessel. And someday I'm coming back. Someday I'm coming back. And the world's going to be astounded. Because I'm going to say, they belong to me. They got my name. And they got my seal. Let's stand together and praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Lift your hands to the Lord and praise Him right now. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus.